Hi everyone. Welcome to the Desi Crime podcast. I am Ashwarya, your host for this episode, and I'm Aryan. Before we start the case for today, we want all of you to go over to our Patreon and subscribe to support the podcast. To help the podcast out and to avail amazing benefits, go to www.patreon.com/desicrime and select a tier that works best for you. We'd also like to thank all of our patrons. Thank you so much for any contributions you make in helping run this podcast. Usually when we cover cases on this podcast we talk of the stories of singular victims a woman raped a man murdered a child kidnapped and that one victim story is enough to enrage us to make us feel sorrow and anger but what happens when crime organizes itself across a whole city engulfing more than 500 victims destroying lives and scarring generations This is the story of one such crime that has somehow been erased from our common psyche. This is the story of the Ajmer sex scandal. All right so right off the bat Ashwarya let's uh, start off with something from the previous episode that we covered firstly like always thank you guys so much for all the love that you've expressed regarding that particular episode and it took some time to produce it because of all the nuances offered in the investigation required but we are glad it came out the way it did for those of you who have been long time listeners of the desi crime podcast You know that Ashwarya and I are not one to be triggered nor respond to trolling whether that's online in person however that may be that's just not our temperament but at the same time we really care about genuine commentary and constructive criticism from our listeners something we got with regards to the previous episode was Aryan I think you were absolving the university of all blame and the comment section in the, of the previous episode in the instagram are filled with it and at the same time of course there are people defending that and my uh, response to that and i think ashwarya echoes the same is a thank you for sharing your thoughts folks that have the capacity to share that in a good way that means a lot to us and there were a, a majority of them were very nicely written comments very nicely written comments yeah and at the same time we would also like to say by no means were we absolving the university of blame you know it is easier for me and ashwarya to appear as these unbiased heroes that by vilifying the university but we said what we truly felt given the facts of the situation and the facts of the situation are that the email i read out that took some time to dig out frankly was just one email in a thread of several emails that the family of sneha hadn't shared hence to comment on that alleged death threat prior to an investigation by the police was simply unreasonable yep if it turns out that the death threat was in and of itself all that there was and that snu did not act per how it was supposed to 
if this is what the investigation yields, we'll be the first to blame the university for its actions. But commenting on the fact that universities in India are infested with gun-related crime, and this is not SNU, universities in Gurgaon, schools in Gurgaon, universities across India have gun crime rampant where rivalry leads to shootings. The systemic issue of guns being available is something we should not forget in the scheme of things. So when we say that it is frankly too easy to bring guns into campuses in India, I do not blame an individual university for that because there are many universities suffering from this. But that is not to absolve the university of any blame. No, I completely agree with you on that, Aran. And I think even in the podcast, we made an active effort to try and discuss what could be possible solutions to an issue like this. Like what could a university do if there is a death threat? Is just a threat alone enough to expel a student before an inquiry is conducted? Like how does one check all the bags? So if you all actually do have better suggestions, if you think we were wrong in saying that we really don't know what the solution is, is there even a solution? If you all think we're wrong in that, we'd love to hear what your solutions are because this is how great ideas are born. And perhaps you all have insights that we may have not. And our only contingency on solution was, of course, there are other solutions possible, right? But how do you not make an Indian university a paternalistic state where everything every student is doing is being monitored at all times? The smallest of grievances are then treated to the extremities, right? Because then that's, it is a solution. It will reduce problems. But again, but then you're instituting an authoritarian sort of setup, which is not congenial to education, which is why we were just interested in finding that out. And that kind of solution has problems of its own in the sense that India is a deeply conservative country and even older like peons and older older people that take care of the hostels, for example, have their own values like girls shouldn't meet boys. And if you're in a relationship, your parents get informed. Like, do you want to, does a student want to deal with those issues? We're all progressive people. We think it's okay to date and be friends with men and women likewise. Right. But that has another set of problems when you let a different generation of people kind of take over the administrative responsibilities of a completely different generation. Exactly. But nonetheless, we appreciate all your love and all your constructive criticism. And we will learn and grow as we go on. And I hope as we do, you as listeners do as well. But speaking of biases, <laughs> we have a case today that is uh, riddled with biasness and yeah. hence weirdly covered by our Indian media. Ishwara, tell us more about this case. All right, Aran. So for this case, we're going all the way back to the beautiful city of Ajmer. And Aran and I actually have I some connection to Ajmer. We absolutely love Ajmer. We've been there a couple of years for the Mayo College debate. And? We've had an incredible and, time. And Ishwara. And Aran won the national Mayo College debate. It was schools from all over the country, including schools like Doon School and schools like Vasant Valley, like the fanciest of schools. And Aran won the entire competition and yeah. actually got handed a book by Ram Jait Malani as one of his prizes. Oh, I totally forgot. <laughs> I didn't remember that. Subtle Aran bragging. I am so humble. <laughs> exactly. What a beautiful city. I have a beautiful memories. city. So much culture, so much love, so much history. Absolutely incredible to be there. So many young people in the mix of an older generation. Like it's a great yeah. mix of demographies as well. And in many ways, to me, Ajmer is a representation of India. It's home to significant Muslim and Sufi holy sites like the Dargah of Moinuddin Chishti, along with major Rajput forts like the Taragar and a strong Hindu diaspora, and home to India's young studying in some of the finest schools in the country. 
Ajmer is the city of the coming together of all generations, cultures and backgrounds. It's beautiful. If you walk through a street in Ajmer, it smells like incredible food, incense and sweat. Mm-hmm. And Ajmer was pretty much the same in 1992, the year we are going back to. Hustling, bustling and lively. On the 22nd of April, 1992, it was just another regular day in Ajmer. People woke up and went on to collect their usual morning newspaper copy, the most famous of which was a local newspaper called the Dainik Navjyoti. On this morning, the Dainik Navjyoti had an article published by journalist Santosh Gupta talking about a rape and blackmailing racket operation out of Ajmer. Barely anyone paid attention. Santosh Gupta had assumed his article would take the city and the country by storm, as did his editor Deen Bandhu Chaudhary. But nobody batted an eye. The men were frustrated. Work had gone into this article. Everyone in Ajmer knew what was going on in this seemingly peaceful city. Hell, even the wealthy in cities like Delhi and Jaipur knew. People would come to Ajmer from all parts of the country, walk over to the infamous Bharosa Color Lab, and offer to pay enormous sums of money for photographs of women. And surely, Bharosa Color Lab, a small-time, innocuous-looking photo studio and printing shop, would sell the photographs to random men. The lab had upwards of a hundred photographs, all of girls being raped or inappropriately touched. The girls in the photographs ranged from ages 12 to 20, all schoolgirls studying in Ajmer's many famous schools. Wow. Major politicians and wealthy businessmen from bigger cities would go a step further and demand that the women or girls in those photos be sent over to them. To the writers and editors of Dainik Navjyoti, this sounded like one of the biggest rape and blackmailing scandals of the country, but nobody seemed to care. Agitated by a lack of justice, on the 15th of May 1992, about a month after the first article came out, Dainik Navjyoti and its writers decided to take a stronger stance. They were going to demand the public's attention and action by printing the same explosive front cover story two days in a row. In bold, big Hindi letters, the headline read, Sauce se zyada college girls hui shikar, banne lagi nude photos or Xerox kopiya. <laughs> in English, that translates to more than a hundred girls targeted. Nude photos and Xerox copies are being distributed. But this title was the least explosive part of the headline. Under it were featured the very photos the article spoke about. Black and white photos of girls with their faces blurred out, some clearly semi-naked with men surrounding them, holding their breasts, fondling their bodies. Next to these photos were plastered the faces of the 19 culprits. The men responsible for raping these girls, taking their photographs, circulating them across the country, leading so many young girls to either suicide or a life of shame and guilt. Ashwara, you know how when folks criticize the means of a protest, they tend to obfuscate the goal of the protest. Yeah. And, you know, one such example, even though I you know, personally don't agree with the means of this, but when there were oil protesters and climate change protesters that threw paint on famous paintings yep. to draw attention to the bigger issue of climate change people got hung up on the act of throwing the paint and mm-hmm. look how bad that is and you know frankly i also disagree with that as a means of protest but right. there are other examples where 
LGBTQ uh, supporters or free Ukraine supporters sort of were streakers in World Cup games and they ran onto the pitch and drew attention. I think in a similar concept is visible here where the newspaper went ahead with just posting the facts of the case which they thought were worthy of attention. But when that didn't come, they had to highlight it in a more salacious way which caught more eyes and you know it's tough to think is that the right thing to do or not but the goal was still to draw attention to an injustice even if the means were not the most noble absolutely it's kind of like the the fuck the draft case in the united states where the man walked into the supreme court with a fuck the draft patch or t-shirt or something like that i mean yeah sure it's really controversial that he said fuck the draft in the middle of a war but the point was the protest not the Mm. exact words of the protest the point was the draft the point was the draft draft. not fuck the draft exactly and that's kind of what is at play here but we'll get to all of that later and right now let's talk about these criminals, the criminals whose faces were featured on this magazine. These were powerful men, men from the prominent Khadi family of Ajmer and members of the Ajmer Indian National Congress and the Ajmer Youth Congress, all young men with power and money behind them. It was in this one headline in the Dainik Navjoti in 1992 that began a saga of uncovering a crime of unimaginable magnitude, the remnants of which are still felt to this year, 2023. The investigative journalism that went down in Ajmer to bring this rape and blackmailing racket to an end led to tales of revenge, murder, suicide, politics, religion and corruption. But for us to uncover this story piece by piece, let's go back a few years before this article ever came out, to the year 1990. Now, this is a little bit of a history lesson, but I promise I'll keep it short. And I, I promise love history it's lessons. Relevant. No, no, no. I promise let's it's relevant to our case. Let's make whole episode of history. <laughs> All right. So in 1990, Ajmer Aran, just like today, the major Muslim landmark was the Ajmer Sharif Dargah or the Dargah of the Sufi saint and philosopher Moinuddin Chishti. Highly recommend any Beautiful Indian Dargah, who happens yes. to be in Ajmer to go there. Sure, I think we went when we were we there. We did go there, yes. We, we did prayed. go there. I've been there, you know, before as well. It's yep. a beautiful, just like I think we've talked about other holy sites on this podcast, it is a must visit for somebody who's in the area. I absolutely agree. It has an air of reverence and an air of peace mm-hmm. and communities coming together. It's actually really, really incredible to go to. And that Dargah Aran has stood in Ajmer since 1200 AD when Moinuddin wow. Chishti first arrived in Delhi from Iran under the reign of Emperor Iltutmish. Chishti eventually settled in Ajmer, establishing the religious site. Upon Chishti's passing, his descendants took it upon themselves to look after the Dargah. Eventually, the powerful Muslim clergy that came to look after the Dargah came to be known as the Khadims of Ajmer. Khadim literally translating to caretaker or servant. Like I said, the Khadim family that takes care of the Dargah now and did even in 1990 claimed to be descendants of Moinuddin Chishti himself. In this prominent family in the 1990 were three prominent and powerful young men. One was Farooq Chishti, president of the Ajmer Youth Congress, a subsidiary of the Indian National Congress. The second was the joint secretary of the Ajmer Youth Congress, Anwar Chishti. The other was Nafis Chishti, who was the vice president of the Ajmer Indian National Congress. This story begins with these three men, Farooq, Anwar and Nafis, and their ties to the Sophia School in Ajmer. 
The Sophia School was and is an all-girls boarding school with a student body of approximately 2,000 girls, all of whom live and reside on the campus in the city of Ajmer. The school is consistently ranked as one of the finest boarding schools in the country. Now, one might ask themselves, what do these three grown men from influential families in Ajmer have to do with an all-girls boarding school? The right answer should be nothing more than professional work, perhaps. But one of these three men, Farooq, was intimately involved with a student from the school. Now, reports are missing on whether this was ever a legitimate relationship and whether the equation was ever completely consensual between the two. Obviously, there is the question of whether or not a minor, even a 17-year-old girl, should be involved with a guy who is in his early 20s. But frankly, we all know plenty of people who have been in relationships like that. And I say early 20s because the exact age of these men isn't available anywhere. Yet we can deduce that they were in their late teens or early 20s based on their involvement in the Youth Congress and other pieces of information. Right, right, right. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with a 17-year-old dating an 18, 19 or 20-year-old. Regardless of whether or not this was ever a legitimate relationship though, slowly Farooq began to change the dynamic. This girl, let's call her A, and Farooq would meet regularly outside the confines of the school. And in one of those times, Farooq took A to an isolated location in his family's farmhouse where he raped her. Again, whether this first act of sex was rape or consensual sex, the stories vary, but a lot of credible sources call it rape. As if this act wasn't heinous enough for him, Farooq had a much larger game plan underway. While he raped her and after he raped her, Farooq took photographs with and off A, and these photographs would become the way hundreds of girls from the Sofia school would come to be victims of the worst yet most hushed around sex scandal in the country it's sad to say but lucky for a she was left alive by farooq and dropped back to school the same day threatened against ever speaking up about the incident because if she did these photographs would destroy her life if you can imagine your compromising photographs being released today in 2023 Imagine them being released in the year 1990 in a small conservative and religious city like Ajmer. There are also claims that Farooq had chosen A on purpose because she came from a small middle-class Indian family. She and her family lacked the power and resources that Farooq and his family had in spades. He had made sure she wouldn't speak up. But not only had he made sure she wouldn't speak up about this one incident, he made sure he could keep bringing her back over and over again and keep raping her and she would never speak up. In fact, he made sure that out of her fear, she would agree to bring along other female friends of hers and none of them would ever speak up either. And so he did exactly that. He used the photographs to blackmail A into firstly being raped over and over again, not just by him but by his friends, including the ones I mentioned above, and he blackmailed A into bringing along a friend of hers to the farmhouse with whom the same cycle began again. Either Farooq and his friends would gang rape and rape the girl. They would take pictures of the girl being raped by the men, sometimes in a group, and then blackmail her into bringing more friends and keeping quiet. Slowly, over time, and over the course of a few years, Farooq and his friends managed to bring over somewhere close to 500 girls. Jesus. The reports vary on this, but every report places the number between 200 and 500, with famous officials saying they have no actual idea what the number is, and the number is much higher than anything ever reported. These girls were the ones that they put through the same trauma 
and not a single girl spoke up not publicly at least and that's the sad part in 500 girls it isn't possible that none told their families some must have either the families shamed the girls into keeping quiet or society did because for almost 3 years not a single one of these stories ever made it to the media or the public but something else started to happen in these 3 years sophia school students started to commit suicide at wow. record at alarming rates the world outside didn't know the girls were going through all of this all they saw was that over a span of a couple months six sophia school girls had killed themselves one burnt herself alive one ingested a drug one hung herself and the numbers went up and up and up do we have any kind of data comparing this to the baseline suicide rate in boarding schools in india otherwise no. but i mean even if we don't on its surface from whatever little i know about boarding schools suicides are a once in 2 3 years event which captures the attention of the yep. boarding school for months if not years so six six suicides in a matter of few months is insane that's insane And you're right the suicides created some speculation but like we've discussed previously on the podcast record number of suicides in Indian college cities are not unheard of and they don't automatically equal a sinister criminal underbelly in a city but by this point over a few years the scope of the crime being committed had kind of left the control of the men For example, when the men sent their cameras to the Bharosa Color Lab to get these photos developed, the employees of the lab drooled at what they saw. Jesus. They made copies and copies and copies of each photograph for themselves and went on to distribute these photos to men across the city. In fact, even up until the late 2000s, people visited the photo studio to pay for the photos. as these photos circulated so did demand for these specific women so now when the rich wealthy and corrupt started visiting atmer they not only went to the bharosa lab for photos but they tried to find the men to be able to pay for the girls themselves eventually demands for the girls came from all parts of the country with many of them being stuffed into a van and sent to bigger cities like delhi where the elite engaged in what they considered to be casual nights of fun away from their families but what was in fact a serial rape racket make no mistake this was not prostitution this was blatant blackmail and rape i i was just about to say that ashwarya that it appears to be prostitution yep and pimping of some sort but and pimping of some sort and you can have your own moral outlook on prostitution and pimping by no means are they similar to what is happening here no not what at is all. happening here is a much more degraded unethical perverse and frankly criminal version of prostitution and pimping absolutely on the face of it it seems something like prostitution and pimping just because of the transportation and sale of these women but it's frankly sex trafficking that's exactly what it exactly. is exactly and around because of these men's high position in local and national political circles it's claimed and i don't doubt this for a second that countless politicians went over to the farmhouse to rape the girls as well Slowly these photos made their way to the Khadim family drivers and cooks and other house helps all of Jesus whom now blackmailed the girls themselves 
So the women were being blackmailed by Farooq and his gang. They were being separately blackmailed by regular locals like the drivers and house helps who circulated the photos among themselves. The girls were being blackmailed by anyone who went over to Bharosa Color Lab and paid for the photos. The Bharosa Lab employees allegedly blackmailed and raped the women as well. It's even alleged that when some concerned citizens sent the photos over to small-time local newspapers, the newspaper staff that found the photos blackmailed wow. the girls into rape as well. The torture and torment was never-ending. This isn't a case of, oh my god, why did so many girls kill themselves? This is a case of, oh my god, how did the ones that didn't kill themselves even end up surviving? So this makes one wonder. The suicide didn't gain any attention as anything sinister, all right, believed. But this, a city like Ajmer with the members of the Khadim family engaging in sex trafficking and blackmail of almost 500 girls, but nobody spoke up? The answer is people did know, and people did notice, including political parties and major politicians. But the reason why nobody spoke up is the reason that's probably crossed all of your minds already. It's the elephant in the room and let's address it. Religion While some politicians seem ever ready to jump at the chance of stirring religious tensions by making communal remarks, there is the other extreme to the spectrum, where political parties feared religious tensions and simply kept quiet about the matter. Mm. The men, all of them involved in the crime, were not only regular Muslim men walking the streets of Ajmer, they were representatives of one of India's most holy Muslim sites. Along with the three men I mentioned previously, there were other members of the same family, all Muslim as well. A man named Moijullah, another named Ishtar Ali, another named Shamsuddin, another named Suhail Chishti, another named Salim Chishti, and so many more who probably never got caught or named who were responsible for this crime. This family traced their lineage to the Chishti himself. Added to that, almost all of the girls that the men targeted were Hindu, although there were a number of Muslim girls among the victims as well. In fact, there are reports that suggest that some of the Khadim family's girls from their extended relatives were also victims. And to add to that, there were also a significant number of prominent Hindu men who assisted and protected these men. And we'll get into that later. Ashwarya. I think we have cultivated an audience and, you know, we lovingly refer to you as the Desi crew and the Desi family. But I think we have cultivated an audience that understands injustice is injustice. And it doesn't matter who the perpetrator is. The gender doesn't matter. The ethnicity doesn't matter. The religion, as we are talking about now, doesn't matter. We have covered stories in the past where the perpetrators were Muslim and the victims were Hindu. And we have covered cases in the past where the perpetrators were Hindu, like the Lux case, if you remember, yep, the Kolkata one, the where the victim case, yeah. was Muslim. There are cases where the both the victims and the perpetrator belong to the same religion. Absolutely. But we need to start getting into a habit as a country to talk about the issues focusing on the victim. And it's the victim that has suffered no matter what. So if the perpetrator is Hindu, Muslim, it doesn't matter. So the tendency that some folks might have after listening to this as, oh my God, this is a controversial case. Why did you guys cover this? You should have let it be hush-hush. That is exactly why we covered it. Because it's been hush-hush for so long. Because people feel uncomfortable talking about it. But we need to talk about uncomfortable things so that the victims get justice in society and in popular culture. 
Absolutely, I agree. And that was the primary reasons why I covered this case. And the moment I covered it, I knew we also had to address the angle of religion because if we didn't, the comment sections would be filled with it and they'll still be filled with it. And that's perfectly fine. And there'll obviously be and has been speculation on whether these men targeted Hindu girls on purpose. And that matter is up for all of you to debate with yourselves. There is no definitive proof to show that this was a systemic targeting of Hindu girls. But there's also no proof to show that it wasn't a systemic targeting of Hindu girls. If any proof of either of these sides does exist, it's buried deep within the annals of our political system and far beyond my reach. But this fear was enough to cower our leaders into silence, the fear of religiously motivated riots and tensions. Until, of course, Dainik Navjoti stepped in. Santosh Gupta and his editor Deen Bandhu Chaudhary couldn't believe what was going down in their city and the silence around it. And so they wrote their first article, hoping that this issue being represented in the media would stir some emotions up. But it did not. That's when came their second explosive article that featured pictures of the women, albeit with their faces blurred out. Only one of those photos is available easily online today. It's a black and white photo, and it's gut-wrenching. The quality is poor, and so it's hard to initially make sense of what is happening in the photograph. But the closer you look, the scarier it becomes. There's clearly a woman in the center of the frame with dark black hair that seemed tied back. Her thin neck, protruding collarbones, and bare chest is visible. It doesn't look like she's wearing anything. There are two men in the frame too, their faces not blurred. One of them to her left and the other to her right. The man on the left is kissing the girl's cheek and the one to her right is looking straight at the camera with a huge grin on his face. The men have their hands up in the photo as each of their palms grabs one of the breasts of the girl. It's the grin on this man's face that boils my blood. It's the happiness he must have felt in this moment that has unsettled me for days, I can imagine this moment vividly in my mind. The men laughing and cracking jokes as they touch this girl, as she either asks them to stop or just sits there in her silence, having her dignity strip away. Aran, I'm sending you the photograph right now. This is the first time Aran's seeing this photo and I want to know what your thoughts are. Ashwara, that smile infuriates me. I, I am um, experiencing what I felt when you narrated the Rushika Girotra case. Yep. That visceral anger. I, I mean, we are bound to share this picture with all of you. Just to, uh, w what I like, you know, air quotes, like about this picture is that the face of the assailants is visible, the two yeah. depraved men. And the girl is completely unidentified. The girl is completely unidentifiable. I mean, it looks like a Rorschach blot at first glance. And it's when you point yep, out exactly. that there's a rabbit, you go, oh, now you can't unsee the rabbit. That This picture is yeah. like that. But to think that this was one of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, that was circulated among a community of depraved men, it just makes me sad at the plight of Indian men, man. Honestly, I mean... That smile, that smile is so yeah. That's such I a disgusting smile. smile, guys. You have I to agree. you have to see this to just understand what I mean. When Ashwara is right on with, it's depraved. It's a depraved grin. I agree. This photo has made me want to cry. Looking at it again makes me feel another kind of way. Like it's absolutely horrendous. And from the way this photo is, it's really hard, at least for me, to tell which men are in this photo and it's completely like Aran said impossible to tell which girl is in here 
and i wonder if she's one of the girls that killed herself or if she's alive somewhere today hmm. maybe a mother or a wife hmm. to someone it's unfortunate i probably won't ever know regardless though this was one of the photos published in the dainik navjyoti like aryan said one can hate the dainik navjyoti for the way they protested for publicly posting these photos up for the country to see but there was not an inch of progress in favor of these women for 2 years as 500 of them got gang raped until the country got to see the photos for themselves and then it was as if all hell broke loose protests were organized all across atmer and in other major cities of rajasthan the people who took to the streets were so agitated and the threat of violence especially religious tension rose so much that the state government imposed a 3 day band or essentially a lockdown on the city as people went on strikes in the midst of this and rightfully so opposing political parties levied allegations against members of the indian national congress leaving the country agitated and in turmoil finally after pressure from high ranking officials in jaipur the police filed an fir and initially 30 girls came forward claiming to be victims imagine just for a second in a country like india to have been raped and for 30 women to have the yep. courage to come out and speak up if 30 girls were the ones that speak up just fathom the amount that got raped but while 30 girls coming forward sounds like an incredible start if the murder of jessica lal taught us anything It's that there's not enough witness protection no, in India. No, I swear. One by one by one, the women backed out after their families were threatened or paid large sums of money. From those thirty, as the investigation went on, only twelve remained who stood to their initial statements against the men. Eighteen of them had been scared into silence. Using photographs of the girls, the police identified the men they were building the case against. With these 12 girls in tow the police built their case and soon the trial began in 1992 itself. Once trial began there was still not enough witness protection for the girls and so 10 more reverted back on their original statement and refused to testify against the men. The case now stood on the testimony of two girls against a group of 18 very powerful men including Farooq, Anwar and Nafees. But these two women were unwavering in their conviction to stand against the men. They knew they had to take them down. 6 years later in 1998 there was a verdict in the case and all men were sentenced to life in prison. Fantastic verdict one might think, but whenever our cases ever ended at the verdict itself. What verdict is announced and what verdict is actually enforced in real time are two vastly different stories. And so suddenly upon the announcement of the verdict Farooq Chishti the mastermind behind this crime and his lawyer suddenly began to claim that Farooq had developed schizophrenia Oh of course I'm sure there was a sort of little devil sitting on his left shoulder telling him to commit all these crimes and he's a poor Absolutely. little innocent religious guy after all eh And so Aran Farooq actually never went to prison in 1998 You're kidding me Ashwarya you are kidding me One of the other men accused was granted bail after 2 years and according to Arjak there's speculation that he committed suicide while other reports suggest that he ran off to a different country possibly Bangladesh a number of the other men out of the 18 reportedly moved to the US after receiving bail shortly wow. after the verdict as well 
Some of the men continued to serve their life sentence when the Rajasthan High Court declared their verdict too harsh mm-hmm. and reduced mm-hmm. it to just 10 years. Very harsh, yeah. Now there's debate over here. Was this the Rajasthan High Court's fault or the fault of the fact that only two women ever came forward? Yeah, I guess I guess that's part of it. I guess we'll never know. Yeah, I guess that's part of it. You know, I have that knee-jerk response of justice, but then again, a justice system is founded on certain principles and procedures that need to be upheld regardless of what I want the outcome to be. But again, the core, I can't dissociate the ease of punishment with the degree of the crime. I agree. And even if it's the girl's fault or like society's fault that the girls couldn't come forward, it's still the system's fault for not giving girls enough protection for them to be able to come forward. So either way, I think it all ties back into the system anyway. Aran, the key detail here is that none of the three main accused, Farooq, Anwar, or Nafis, are currently in prison. They haven't been for a long time. In fact, discussion groups on Quora and Reddit suggest that all three of the men have settled peacefully in different cities across the country with wives and children, never having served even their 10-year sentence. Some of the perpetrators remained on the run for as long as 26 years, with one being caught in 2018 and another being caught in 2012. One of the men identified from the photographs is still on the run. I think it's safe to say that justice was denied to the countless women, possibly many more than we know of. The worst part is that even as of 2022, the girls, now women, mothers and some even grandmothers, were being called to court for every little development in the case. One of the women called to court just a year ago to give her statement against one of the accused, who was also present in the court, said the following. Why are you still calling me to court again and again? It's been 30 years. I'm now a grandmother. Leave me alone. We have families. What do we tell them? But Aryan, the trauma isn't just live for the victims and their families. The damage from this case runs far wider and deeper. In fact, it seems as if the damage sweeped with it everyone but the criminals. It is this trauma and damage that led to a shooting in January of 2023. On January 7th of this year, a man named Savai Singh was shot dead in Pushkar, the beautiful hilly town in Ajmer, by two brothers, Surya Pratap Singh and Dharam Pratap Singh. You see, Surya and Dharam Pratap were the sons of journalist Madan Singh, who in the 1990s was key in bringing this case to light. His bold journalism and staunch reporting was hard-hitting and helped push the momentum that the Dainik Navjuti had caused. Because of Madan's reporting, he began receiving death threats when one day three men shot him on the busy Srinagar road in Ajmer. Madan actually survived and escaped and was admitted into a hospital in Ajmer when seven men broke into the hospital and shot him dead there. Cowards. The man in charge of murdering Madan Singh Aran was, you guessed it, Savai Singh. When Madan died, his two sons, Surya and Dharam, were 12 and 8 years old respectively. (laughs) Now, 31 years later, they are 43 and 39 years old respectively. They avenged their father's death 31 years later by shooting his murderer point-blank in the head. When caught by the police, the brothers posed with smiles on their faces that are hard to get past. 
As we discuss this tragedy today, 31 years later, on the face of it, it seems like the city of Ajmer has moved on. But little do people know that even until the 2000s, when the women of Ajmer would receive offers for marriage, the families of the men would go to local shops and local newspapers trying to confirm whether the girls that they are going to meet are the ones who were raped back in 1992. Everything in society, everyone, every system made life impossible for these girls. The system and the citizens must all collectively bear responsibility now for a city full of tortured women.